What would a truly intersectional field of communication and media studies look like? About this and many other important topics is this conversation with Lisa Flores in this new episode of El Café Latinx. What is the experience of being a Latinx or Latin American scholar in the field of communication and media studies? What are the main challenges and opportunities that come with our identities? These are the issues that we'll talk about in El Café Latinx, where some of the leading voices in the field will share their professional experiences. Hola, my name is Pablo Wojcicki. I teach at Northwestern University, where I hold the Hamid bin Khalif Al-Thani Chair in Communication. Together with Mora Matassi, doctoral student at Northwestern and executive producer of this podcast, we invite you to discover the journeys of scholars who are at the cutting edge of creating knowledge about Latinx or Latin American communities across the Americas. These are our stories. Esas son nuestras historias. Estas son nuestras historias. Welcome to this new episode of El Café Latinx. I'm delighted to have with us Lisa Flores today. Lisa is Associate Dean of Diversity, Equity and Inclusion and Professor in the College of Media, Communication and Information at the University of Colorado at Boulder. Before she was at the University of Utah at Arizona State University and at the University of Wisconsin on various faculty roles. Lisa got her undergraduate degree from Berry College in Georgia a master's degree from Northern Illinois University, not very far from Northwestern, and a PhD at the University of Georgia in speech communication. Her research interests span rhetorical theory and criticism, critical race studies, feminist gender and queer studies, migration mobility and containment, Latinx studies, border studies, deportation and deportability. Her recently published book, The Portable and Disposable, Public Rhetoric and the Making of Illegality, published by Penn State University in 2021, not one, not two, not three, six book awards. I know of no book that has received this universal and so you know, impressive critical acclaim. I'm in awe of her accomplishments. Lisa, welcome to this episode of El Café Latinx. Thank you so much, Pablo. It's a, a kind of an honor to be here with you um, and to spend time thinking about, you know, career navigation. Thank you so much. Pleasure is all ours. Lisa, how did it all begin for you? That is, how was the start of the journey that led you to become a professor? Well, you know, I'm sure I could start at any number of points, but um, there's two really powerful memories for me from my undergraduate days. Um, I was at a very small school. I was a Spanish major because I didn't know what else I should do. And my sister said, my, my older sister, the smart one in the family said, why don't you just be a Spanish major? And I said, okay. Um, and I ended up at this small school and I'm a Spanish major. Um, and somewhere along the way, um, I, I go through various minors and I finally settle on, I don't know if it was a speech minor, but um, the closest to, to what um, the, the discipline now. And um, in that, 
because of that minor, I had to take public speaking and um, I had the top grade in my public speaking class for the quarter that I took it in my class and there were three sections. So the three of us with the top grade were asked to participate in the um, every quarter um, competition, public speaking competition. So I did that um, and um, the professor uh, who was also the the uh, advisor and the coach for the forensics team invited me to join the forensics team. So I, I did, and I found rhetorical criticism and it was clearly a, it was uh, by far the, um, oh, I don't know what it was called, but the event that I, that I loved the most. Um, somewhere along that, I'm walking down the hallway of the building where both Spanish and speech were held. Um, and I walked past a class, it was some first year Spanish class, and they were conjugating verbs, hablo, habla, hablamos. And I was like, okay, I'm not spending the rest of my life teaching Spanish, I cannot do that. So what am I supposed to do now? I have a degree in Spanish, or I will have a degree in Spanish. I don't wanna teach Spanish. So I went to grad school, and the one in the piece that I had learned to study, and that was rhetorical criticism. Um, and it just continued. Every now and then I would think about quitting, but then I was like, well, what else am I gonna do? And then I would come back, um, and then the other piece, maybe, um, I can also remember, I think it was my first year in the, in the PhD program and I was taking a, an argumentation theory seminar. Um, we met for four hours, um, a Thursday afternoon in a very small room with no windows. I can still see this room too. Um, and then uh, the first uh, Persian Gulf War broke out um, and I would go home at night and I would watch the news for the first time in my life seeing um, war on television. Yes, I was sheltered. Um, and then I would read um, theories about the enthymeme and I could not put, hold the two together. Um, I couldn't find the relevance in what I was studying. Tried to drop out of grad school. I couldn't get a job that paid as much as my assistantship. Um, and, you know, grad students know that's not very much money. Um, but somehow I found myself in a women of color feminism class. And again, it was like, okay, all right, this is it, right? So, and that was clearly a moment in which I found place, voice, and recognition um, in, a, you know, I had been in higher education my whole life, my, my whole adult life, right? So, but suddenly I found um, something that really resonated for me. Very interesting. How was graduate school then? I mean, you finished your PhD in 1994. It's almost 30 years uh, from now. Um, those of us who've been in the academy for some time have seen the academy change quite a bit. How was your experience in graduate education, both at Northern Illinois and the University of Georgia, uh, back then in you know, the late 80s, first half of the 90s? How do you compare that with graduate school today? Wow, that's a really powerful question. Um... I guess I would say that only in moments did I know that I didn't belong so easily. Like I sort of always felt it, but then it would hit me and I would be taken aback by it. Um, uh, so when I was applying for um, MA programs, I applied to Iowa, Ohio State and Northern Illinois. I applied to Northern Illinois because they found my name off of some list um, and I was clearly a targeted recruit based on race. 
Um, the other two I applied to because um, Bob Frank, Dr. Frank, my speech coach, the forensics coach, um, introduced me to those two programs, but I didn't, I had no clue what I was doing. Um, so um, I remember that the University of Iowa, Michael McGee called me, he was the graduate director. I didn't know who he was. I didn't know that he was the most profound rhetoric scholar um, in decades, but he called me and offered me an assistantship and it was a great, actually it was a great offer. It was five years of funding with two years of fellowship um, and three years of teaching. And it was, I was getting this offer because I was Mexican American, right? Which is how I identified at the time. Um, Northern Illinois by comparison, you know, was offering me just a regular teaching assistantship. And I didn't know that pedigree mattered, that school mattered. I didn't know any of those things. I didn't know that it mattered to go to a terminal MA program versus a MA PhD program. I, what I knew is that I didn't want to get the special assistantship because I was Mexican-American. I wanted to be smart enough on my own terms. And so I went to Northern Illinois only to find out that I had a special assistantship um, and a special assignment teaching a special class for first-gen students of color, right? Now, great, um, great move. Um, uh, Northern Illinois was a small and intimate program um, and we got lots of attention. I'm sure I would have been overwhelmed at Iowa. Um, but I think that pattern is still there. I think that part hasn't changed, right? We still don't know how to think about what it means to recruit a diverse student population. We still think it's about getting bodies in the door um, and, and we still will reduce those bodies to um, the, the check marks rather than to um, what it means to have vibrant scholarly and theoretical voices in the room. I don't think that part has changed very much. Um, and I don't say that, you know, to say, to say anything other than when I, when I went to the University of Georgia, um, it was a brand new PhD program. I think I was part of the second cohort. It was a small program again, um, but some of the patterns were still there. I was still sort of like brought in the door through some kind of special door, back door, side door, I don't know. Um, and I was so fortunate at the University of Georgia to have four feminist or feminist sympathetic rhetorical scholars in the department. I don't think very many people have that today. Um, I think I was just lucky in finding those people. Um, my advisors didn't, as I, as I started studying race more, they, they, they didn't know what this um, body of work meant, but they said, you know, follow the research pattern. Um, I'd like to say, I think we still do that with our students. We still say, you know, follow the passion, follow your interests, don't be a mini me. Um, but I don't know, as I think about, as I think about the, the students in my program, especially the students of color, the queer students, I think they experienced the dehumanization daily and I don't know that I did. Um, I don't think it was the pervasive piece and I don't know if it's the increasing corporatization of higher education that, you know, cogs in the wheel, teach more classes with fewer resources. Um, mm. yeah. Interesting, so you highlight patterns of both, right? Continuity and discontinuity. Yeah. Right? Um, how can we do better? Because the discontinuity does not seem to be for the better, 
right? Um, so how can you, we do better in your role as associate dean? I'm sure you think a lot and you enact a series of, of practices to try to revert the status quo. What works, what doesn't? And how's the experience of trying to do that? I wonder if what most of us want and need, regardless of rank, um, and maybe regardless of where we are in our lives, like in, you know, whether it's whatever jobs we are, most of us want to matter. We want to we want to be seen. We want to be heard. We want to be recognized for all of who we are. And um, I mean, higher education institutions are institutions founded in white supremacy, and I think that that means they're institutions founded in superiority and inferiority hierarchy, right? So. Some of us already don't matter and in some ways will never matter. But here's what I, a pattern I saw over the past two years. Um, my institution and my college are um, following the philosophy of inclusive excellence, right? We bring in a more diverse, we, we make the institution, the college, the department a more diverse place um, because our excellence is premised on I would like to think it means because our, our excellence is premised on the better, the complexity of thinking and theorizing that happens when we disagree because we bring different perspectives, values, orientations, points of knowledge. I think that's the goal, but I think the practice is typically diversity, bring in more bodies because we know it does matter, right? We know it matters for our students to have access. We know it matters for us to find community. Um, with folks with whom we see ourselves. But in the past two years, I've been in spaces, some of which I made the space for, um, and others in which I was invited to. And they were, in, they were pretty overwhelmingly non-white spaces. Um, there was, you know, a couple of these were um, pedagogy workshops. And, I, and uh, as the associate dean, I run an inclusive pedagogy workshop series every year. And uh, I had a couple of workshops where the facilitators did not perform a whitened mode of professionalism. Um, they invoked profanity. They uh, were um, they they used their their bodies differently. They cited um, only scholars of color. They told stories from their past. They did not, and, and you know, you know, I'm interested in containment. They didn't contain themselves in the ways that whiteness asks us to. And I watched the room. These were in Zoom, but I watched the Zoom room on both of these, um, and I watched some anxiety from some folks in the room. But I also watched other folks in the room lean in, and re relax and breathe, as if this was a space where it was okay to be in all of their complexity. And I'm convinced that if we can create intentionally non-white spaces, I don't know what that means in all the variants, but if we can do that, then we, then those are become moments where some of us get to breathe. I think that's one thing. That's very interesting. Now, the very act of creating those spaces is already an emancipatory practice that then leads to more practice of those kinds, correct? Yes. yes. So why now, then? Why, why do you think institutions of education like yours are now doing it? And how sustainable is the momentum? Mm. You know, that's, that's important. Because uh, I think part of the why now 
is still a response to uh, 2020 and um, the murder of George Floyd. I think it's still a response like, I think there's still this sense when much of the nation was like, oh wow, we live in a really racist nation. Um, we better do something about it, we better fix it. That part is gonna go away. That part is not gonna sustain. That's, but that part's not gonna last. Because, um, you know, we're talking a lot on my, on my campus about compassion fatigue and, and the ways in which the pandemic is really calling upon all of us to change some of the ways in which we think about higher education, whether it's flexible deadlines for um, assignments for students or flexibility with attendance policies. But compassion fatigue is taking over. And, um, and so, you know, as that, as that compassion fatigue wanes, my guess is that the national commitment to anti-racism anti is also going to wane, and higher, educa higher institution educations are going to go back to, to business as normal, and, which I think they're actually still doing business as normal. These are just like these little moments. But the piece that you make me really think about is what happens when I'm not associate dean, and so maybe no, the next person is not creating these intentional spaces. It can't be in the person, it has to be structural, right? We have to figure out the structural ways to do non-whiteness, or then that when the person leaves, it's all gone. Um, and maybe that's what I have to put in my mind is, you know, what does that look like for me in the everyday work that I do on campus? I don't know in the moment, but it's critical. Very interesting. Now switching from the register of the actual work practice to the intellectual register, right? Which is also work practice, but of a different kind. How do you see fields of study that you are leading? So for instance, Latinx studies, Latinx media studies, evolving or not as a result of these changes in institutions, in practices, in expectations of the different constituencies of the institutions. Now there's where I think there's so much excitement, energy, and I think radical movement um, going forward. Because, and this goes back to a question that was asked um, in the seminar, which was about um, mobile technology as a mechanism through which migrants can stay in contact with each other. Um, and, it, and it led me to think about um, proliferation, which is in the back of my head as something that I want to think about. But when I study, um, when I study border rhetorics, I'm studying migration, which means I'm studying responses to perceived massive numbers of bodies moving across spaces. And that magnitude terrifies in many ways, right? Which leads to the containment. And here's always the giggle in the back of my head when I think about how nations such as the US attempt to contain migration, even as they also um, every day put in ways to enable it. And, and a part of my work is premised on, on, on this um, belief that the US has no desire to limit the number of migrants who come into the country because we require endless supplies of cheap labor, right? So um, deportation is always a spectacle that makes everybody think there's a problem and so we can deport a few, but then things are gonna go on as, 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 as normal. 
The giggle for me comes in the proliferation, right? The more bodies you bring in, the more bodies there are, the more bodies that move, that connect, that thrive, that grow, that stain, that change. And the U.S. can't stop that from happening, no matter how much it might want to. And um, I think the same thing was true in higher ed. When I was brought in as a diversity um, scholar in any of the number of places or diversity hire in any of the number of campuses, they might think that there's just me and they might not think about what's going to happen. But what happens is there's more of us and we talk and we build and we grow and we think and we proliferate and we thrive and we change. And they can't stop that now. Even And I think that they probably would like to. Because um, I think the fear is there, the threat of, of you know, chaos at the borders, the, the same uh, threat of chaos in the institution. What happens when our institution, I've always been at predominantly white institutions, what happens when it's no longer predominantly white? Everybody gets scared, they shut down, they do the same kind of thing that they do with the border, but they can't change their trajectory because um, they've already put in place all the pieces that will allow us to connect, to build, to grow. And um, one of the most exciting if not disturbing pieces for me is to watch scholarship today um, uh, scholarship uh, on race uh, migration decoloniality um, indigeneity and um, there is a radical edge to that that I, uh, I I'm trying to catch up with um, you know I'm, I'm a little I'm behind the curve because I'm old um, and and I've become very centrist and very institutional in you know having been here so long um, but that those pieces are going to continue to grow, and I know so. I know many um, younger scholars today are all, are going to say there's not enough, and of course there's not enough. Um, but I'm still overwhelmed every day by how much the disciplines and higher education has changed because, in part, um, this these initial moves towards diversity hires, diversity scholars, diversity recruitments, right? It's I don't. I feel like I'm making a, a comparison there that maybe it's too much for this piece, but um, higher education, that the scholarship is changing. Right? Absolutely, no. I I I hear you, and I would like to to add one more ingredient to the mix and and see what your thoughts are. As a scholar and as an administrator, it seems to me that. Another dimension of the change has to do with the growing embrace of what one might call scholarship for change, um, the, the you know, growing um, uh, public scholarship in different forms uh, through traditional media, digital media, you know, documentary, etc. Um, the importance of you know, participatory methods and among those who do empirical work, the importance of an activist agenda. Um, on the one hand, on the other hand, what happens with our hiring promotion, uh, tenure promotion criteria? Are they adapting? Are they not adapting? Should they adapt? Should they not adapt? Right. And added to all that, the adjunctification of higher education. Um, I mean, are they adapting? I think very slowly. Um, the excellence and rigor standards uh, remain almost untouched. Um, maybe we're at a moment where 
Um, much of the nation is calling into questions um, standard course evaluations of teaching. Um, and that's so critical because we know that some bodies are going to have lower course evaluations and then that's a nice mode to eliminate folks. Um, but I am still in so many conversations where the parameters of what counts as um, the best scholarship, the best presses, the best journals is changing very slowly. I, but, but then, okay, I'll, I'll stop and say, the other piece you point to is when, when we move into different kinds of um, journals um, in different, that are no longer all text, but that are doing any number of creative pieces that is a marker that will change the ways in which we think about what scholarly excellence looks like. But as, if we can't interrupt our definitions of scholarly excellence, then, you know, we just reproduce our, the sameness, right? There, you know, we have to have different models. We have to have a range of paths towards excellence. Um, if excellence is still the thing, we have to have any number of models or we're going to hire and reproduce the same people over and over again. And we're going to maybe we're going to make the diversity hires but we're not going to provide um, latitude for a range of different ways of doing your job. And so, you know, that is always going to be a revolving door. Folks are going to come in. They couldn't cut it. We tried. The university says we hired them, but they couldn't, they, they couldn't meet up to the standards. So sorry, they had to go. All right. That's not going to change unless we change our standards. Um, now, going from the abstract to the biographical, uh, or the general to the biographical, you, as I said at the beginning, your most recent book um, won six awards in a single year, three national, three from divisional um, units with the International Communication Association, the same year that one of your essays won also an award. Your scholarship embodies um, the values of change and you know, engage criticism, and it is recognized not once, but multiple. I, mean, I, I honestly don't know any other book that's received six awards in one year. Um, so what's your secret sauce? Well, I took 20 years to write it, um, and it changed its focus any number of times. And um, maybe that's a part of it. I'm not fast. Um, and, and maybe that's a part of why I, I, I think that when there's singular pathways, they serve some and not others. Um, and I'm not, it's not that I'm, you know, I'm not fast in part because, you know, I've got two kids and I've done, you know, elder care. Um, so what, but I also got tenure without it. So maybe I didn't have to be fast. Um, I allowed myself, maybe I didn't even allow myself. I couldn't figure it out, you know? So I just kept until, until it was ready, right? But, you know, that was a luxury of, um, of tenure that allowed me to do that. And it was, if I may say, 
countercultural attitude because the academy part of the corporatization of the academy has been the increased level of productivity that is expected of all of us. Yes. What you are describing is the alternative path, right? The right. opposite path. And um, the benefits that that has for the mode of you know, scholarly um, production. So how did you pick that topic? And, and, and what was your experience um, wrestling with it over the two decade period? Yeah. You know, I, I, um, I was assistant professor at Arizona State University sometime between 1995 and 1998. That's when I was there. And um, there was a neighborhood in um, the, uh, the Phoenix metro area that was pretty close to Tempe the uh, Tempe campus um, that was undergoing gentrification. And so a migrant population was being displaced. And I remember hearing a news story about um, children on their way walking to school, elementary school, being stopped by the police and asked for residency papers. I don't know whether um, parents were with them. I don't, I don't even know if the memory is true, but I'm pretty sure it's a true memory of this piece, right? And I said to myself, okay, you gotta change your focus. You can't keep writing. I was writing about pop culture, which I think is really crucial, but, but I decided then that I needed to study migration. Then I was at the University of Utah and I was a on a joint appointment. I was um, communication and ethnic studies. And I had to teach intro to Chicano studies. Um, and I had to teach this history that I didn't know. I had never, because even though I grew up in Texas, Texas is certainly not going to teach that. And so I taught this, um, this, this era, the 1920s through the 1950s, and I had to teach these four different moments. And I was like, whoa, that's fascinating. Nobody knows about it. Nobody writes about it. Of course they did, but I didn't know that they did. Um, but there's something there. And so I envisioned uh, a rhetorical history that moves across these four, um, these four moments in this 30-year period. And so I just started working on it um, and it was pretty clear and, you know, and I'm going to interrupt the story by telling you the other piece, if there is a secret, is that I was the first. Um, and so, you know, I, I joke with my friends and colleagues um, that when I go to conferences, I'm big Mexi mama, like I am one of the two, three most senior uh, four most senior Latinx folks in communication and, and in rhetoric, um, the oldest female, right? So when you're the first, that, that changes everything. You know, you get to, you, you know, nobody's ever heard it said before. Everybody else, it's not so brand new, even if it wasn't brand new to communication, at least to rhetoric it was. So that was definitely part. And I don't say that to denigrate my own work, but to, to just, I think it's a reality when you're the first you get to be a little bit more special. Um, so, but over the years, wow, you know, each chapter had went through so many different variants and I didn't like, they, they just never sat, it just never felt right. Um, I couldn't figure it out. There was no, so what? There was no like big picture. I was telling a historical story that was tied together only by, um, by chronology, but I had no, I didn't know that I needed a theoretical argument to frame the whole thing. And so somewhere along the way, Around 2015, I figured that piece out um, and started piecing that together, but it really did change. There were chapters, one chapter um, originally was about, it was the chapter on the Bracero program, and originally I was telling it as this moment um, when the nation offered access to whiteness to um, Mexican contract laborers. And it took me years and 
historical research to figure out, no, 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 this was just another variant of indentured servitude. And uh, the whiteness of the narrative um, was not intentionally opportunistic, but uh, a manifestation of how you manage this this capitalistic project, right? So, you know, I all the chapters were doing something totally different um, early on. And then at some point I was sort of like, okay, I really just need to finish this book because I would really like to go up for promotion to professor. So I'm gonna have to just like, let this be the story and move forward. I was gonna ask the two things. I mean, what were the drivers for you to keep at the project for so long and also what brought it to um, conclusion? And now I know that. So if I can turn the conversation upside down, you've been talking about how the project changed. Perhaps you change with the project in different ways. You as a scholar, right? Um, and perhaps even you as a person. Would you mind reflecting on that? Um, not at all. It's it's definitely not my strength. I, I, I think of myself as very reflexive with ideas, but on myself, I'm not so good at that. Um, I think I think that the changes in the project really asked me to think about what it was I was trying to do. Um, you know, for a long time, this project just weighed on me and weighed on me. It was a sign of my failure. I couldn't do it. Everybody else could write a book, but I couldn't figure out how to do it. And so I couldn't give it up because you know, I would say to my partner, I'd say, University of Colorado didn't hire me to come and have babies. They hired me to write this book and, you know, go for promotion. So I have to do that or I'm a failure. Um, and then I think post that, I think I figured out like, shouldn't we all get to, to determine, it goes back to the path that we take. Shouldn't we all get to determine the path that we take um, and, um, why we write and for whom we write. And because um, I talk to grad advisees a lot and grad students a lot, they're like, you know, I don't know that this will get published because it's about race and nobody wants to read that. And, I, and, I, and I'll say, you know, you gotta go with it, right? So maybe it's not, and of course, you need to, we need to make sure you get a job and you get tenure, which you have to follow all the rules, but not at the cost of your soul, right? not at the cost of your passion, because, you know, it's a great job in many ways, but it's certainly not a job that we should give up our passion for. Absolutely. So what other advice do you normally give your students or younger scholars, career advice, intellectual advice? I think one of the ones that I'm, I'm really insistent upon now, and I think it's a lesson I learned, is that, you know, when you first write it, it's going to be wrong. Right? That's just going to be wrong. But it's just your first attempt at starting a conversation. And then somebody's going to talk to you and you're going to change. Right? And so if you don't allow yourself to throw something out there and let it be wrong, then, you know, you're not going to, it's not, you're not going to grow. I, I uh, when I was at Utah, I thought I should learn to ski because, you know, I grew up in Texas, but now I'm surrounded by mountains. I should learn to ski. And I remember, um, I was dating this person who said, if you didn't fall, you didn't fall down today because we would go skiing together. And he said, you didn't learn anything. You have to fall down. 
Um, and so, you know, but I think that the expectations of perfection just silence us, right? If we're not just willing to say, when we read our favorite theorist, our favorite scholar, and it's brilliant, and we can't even put the book down, it's not like that was, they just wrote it, you know, they went through how many versions of wrong, right? So just put it out there. Right. So we talked about you as a scholar, we talked about your work, we talked about the institution of higher education. We haven't talked about the field of communication and media studies. Where do you see the field at? And what do you think is the place of the role of Latino media studies, Latina media studies, Latinx media studies in the wider field conversation? I think we're still a special interest, um, a silo, an add-on to the syllabus, an add-on to the anthology, and um, and this is kind of the proliferation piece. And I think that that is rapidly um, changing. I think it is becoming increasingly clear that the conversations we're having are linked to so many other conversations, um, both mainstream and not, that the, the foundational theoretical arguments that the discipline is making are changing. Um, and that is going to be its own. Now, it's not going to be fast, I don't think. Um, but I do see the field moving consistently toward um, racial, decolonial, indigenous theorizing. And, you know, if I don't think that the, if I think that the institution is going to get bored and drop off, I don't think that the scholarship is. Right. Uh, and so on that note of different temporalities and probably different senses of urgency, if you had magical powers and could be granted one wish about how you would like the field of communication and media studies to change, what would you wish for? Just one wish. Um, you can have more if you want. <laughs> I, and this, okay, so this is very selfish and it reflects some of um, the patterns of isolation across my career. Um, I would like all of us invested in some kind of conversation around race, ethnicity, indigeneity, feminism, queer studies, um, ability to intentionally and always talk together. Um, that we build a very vibrant, multi-sectional, theoretical and collegial space. Um, so that it's not okay for me to say, I, I know I need to, thought, to think about ability, but I'm not doing it yet. Um, that it's no longer, that I will do that, that our, that our, um, our syllabi will become radically different. I, I, because of some changes um, on my campus um, and some limitations or some things we're trying to do in my department, a colleague and I are scheduled to co-teach um, a required course. It's typically readings and rhetoric, and it typically starts at the very beginning, 
and of course goes through however many years. Um, but, but we're a small program right now and so we can't necessarily offer that. So what we're doing is we're trying to teach, um, it's, so it's called readings in rhetoric. And so we're trying to teach readings in racialized rhetoric. So we'll do the survey, but everything will be interwoven with. Um, so they'll, they'll still study um, the critical pieces, but now we'll rethink them. We'll rethink eloquence. We'll rethink, I can't think of any other thing that's, you know, temporality. Um, if we all could off, do that in our scholarship and in our teaching, um, we would all become better thinkers and scholars. Excellent. And on that note, thank you very much, Lisa, for a marvelous conversation. Uh, thank you to our listeners for staying with us to the end. And I invite everybody to join us for the next episode of the Cafe Latinx. Goodbye. Thank you so much. Café Latinx is a production of the Center for Latinx Digital Media in the Department of Communication Studies at Northwestern University. I am Pablo Wojcikowski, your host, and I'm joined by executive producer Mora Matassi. <laughs>